Well, the Lord's Supper is a meal, but it's one of many times in the Bible that food or meals are mentioned. So tonight I want to go real wide lens. I want to talk about the big picture of food and meals in order to help us understand why the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper and what the Lord's Supper does for us. So let me start with just some basic assumptions about why God gave us food or meals, according to the Bible. We have to note this, an obvious thing. God made us to eat. We need to eat, which means that he made us inherently needy, not self-sustaining. And God isn't like this. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't eat. Remember that line in Psalm 50 where he says, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I mean, I'm not hungry. I don't eat. But even if I were hungry, I don't need you to go and get me a burger. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And even more importantly, he doesn't eat. He doesn't need to eat. And God could have made us differently than he did. He could have made us, I suppose, with some kind of solar power on our back or our heads. And we would walk around and we would be energized as we did so. Or, I don't know, maybe he could put some sort of nuclear power device in us. And instead of needing food, we could just kind of keep going. And waste would come out at some point. I don't know. He could have made us differently. But God made us to need a rhythm of finding food and putting food in and fueling our bodies. And it's really short-term, this fuel, isn't it? It's short-lived. Isn't it staggering to think that a Navy SEAL would shrivel up and die in two weeks if he doesn't have just water? Like, how do you take out a Navy SEAL? We'll keep them from water. I know that's hard to do. But the point is, is it doesn't need a bomb to, to take him out. It doesn't need just an M16 to, to stop his heart. It just needs the absence of water. Showing that even our strongest soldiers are still frail. They're still dust, aren't they? Food seems to serve three purposes in the Bible. First, food means sustenance, Right? It means that we're desperate without it. We're doomed without it. We're desperate to get it. Sustenance. But secondly, food serves the purpose in the Bible of celebration. Celebration. It can be lavish celebration. Scripture talks about the deliciousness of food in different places and the diversity of food. And and these are gifts from God that represent something of his creativity. He's a God that enjoys odd, creative gloriously tasting things, apparently. And third, food in Scripture seems to serve the purpose of communion, relationships, lives shared, and acceptance with those whom life is shared. So if you just do a word search of the word table throughout Scripture and you see how it's used, it's it's rich. It's rich with not just dinner time, Food intake, it's rich with communal living, in a sense, 
It reminds us that we were made for community as human beings. We were made for relationships, just like the Trinity is in its three persons. We were made to go together. But food is not an end in itself. And let me underscore that, foodies, who are getting excited that this is a message on food. Our our family likes the Food Network channel and channels like that. We're always watching. We're always hooked on some new series. You know, the food truck race is on now. That's what we got to see. I don't know. Of course, we have a DVR, which it it just records all the new ones. And so, you know, we don't even have to be watching for it. All of a sudden, they pop up, and there they are. Okay, we watch them. Well, it's really important to note in our culture that is increasingly foodie, I mean, other cultures liked food. Your generations past, our generations past here in America liked food, but they don't seem to like. They didn't seem to like it uh, like people like the craft of it today. There's something different going on today with the Food Network, and we need to say food is not an end in itself. Where food energizes, it should fuel obedience to the Lord and love for neighbor and working for God's glory. Where food is part of celebration, it's more than a celebration of food itself. We're celebrating God. We're celebrating his promises. We're celebrating his goodness to us in each other. So again, food is not an end in itself, however good and glorious it is, and however meaningful and purposeful it is in the scriptures. It's something like a log in the fire of God's glory and his purposes. It serves a much bigger purpose than just its own thing. So let's keep all that in mind and now take a tour of the foods and meals of the Bible, at least the theologically significant ones. The Bible, God's plan, is filled with meals. You could almost chart the story of the Bible along the line of different meals. Now, in a sense, the first bit of the story has to do with a meal, or at least it has to do with food. In Genesis 2... Verse 16 says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The very first commandment has to do with food, ironically. We'll leave that alone for now. We could dig deeper there, but there's so many different food, meal references in the Bible. It's just interesting that the thing goes, the whole thing goes wrong on account of eating the wrong thing. But then you have the Passover. You skip to the next book in the Bible, the book of Exodus. You have the Passover. And what is that? But a sacrificial covering, meal celebration that protects them from God's judgment. God's judgment is going to go through Egypt. But the homes that have, in faith, put the blood of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, on the doorposts of their house, that wrath of God will pass over that house. It won't go in. We're told in Deuteronomy 12, as the Israelites celebrated the Passover every year, that they were to do it in the presence of the Lord. So this is a memorial 
celebration reminding Israel throughout its, its years, its millennia even, of the sacrificial covering needed to protect them from God's judgment. It's a key meal. But then you go a little bit further in the story and you find that they're out in the wilderness and they need daily food, right? God doesn't just give us birthday dinners, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we live on those, but we need daily food. And the Israelites wonder when they get out in the wilderness, can God, this is a quote, can God prepare a table in the wilderness for us? I mean, where do we get a table? How do we eat? How do we eat meals in the wilderness? And sure enough, though they grumbled, God did provide for them. Not with a table, but he gave them bread from the sky every day. He gave them water from the rock. He occasionally gave them quail. God provided for them. If you think about it, as they were heading through the wilderness, where they're going is a place of food. The land is a, a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Exodus 3, that early is the reference to milk and honey, this land flowing with milk and honey. And God just keeps repeating, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, rich food. In Joshua 24, God says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You see, flowing with milk and honey, this rich land, this lush land is providing for them in wonderful ways and not according to their labors. It's a gift. Of course, once you get to this land, eventually there's a king and eventually there's, well, friends of the king and sons of friends of the king. One of those sons of a friend of the king is a guy with a funny name, Mephibosheth. Remember that? 2 Samuel 9, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. I actually practiced this today, so I wouldn't do that. Mephibosheth. Good old Shibby. Um, he's Jonathan's son, and he's crippled, and Jonathan's dead, and Jonathan was David's best friend. So, what right does he have to have anything with the king? But David goes calling for Shibby. <laughs> and 2 Samuel 9, verse 8, Mephibosheth says, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? But David says, the verse before, Don't fear. I'll show kindness to you. Not because of what you've done, not something you've earned, but for the sake of your father Jonathan. Because of someone else's worth. He said, you will eat at my table regularly. And then verse 11 says, Mephibosheth was at the table as one of the king's sons. Such lavish, wonderful banquet eating at the king's table. A wonderful picture of grace. Didn't earn it on account of someone else's connection, you could say. It's rich with gospel implications. Of course, Proverbs, though, talks about food, how it's to be enjoyed and how it can be abused, right? I did a whole message on food in the book of Proverbs. 
There's a lot there. Ecclesiastes does something similar. It says that there's an emptiness to food and drink when it is godlike, when it's consuming, when it's your heartbeat. But, on the other hand, Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15, has this, Solomon concluding, I commend pleasure then, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. He said, you know, this is meaningless, pursuing art and pursuing knowledge and and pursuing accomplishments, pursuing fame, pursuing women, pursuing pleasure. And he gets to the end of the road and he says, yes, there's emptiness in food and drink as well. But he says it's the best we got. And he says we shouldn't give up on it. We should give ourselves to it. And, of course, give ourselves to it in light of our relationship with God. So Ecclesiastes 9.7 is so key. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. You're accepted with him now. Well, this is amazing that God would accept us. It's amazing that Jesus would come, and he would eat a lot of meals need to eat a lot of meals with sinners, the really bad sort, I mean, the famously bad sort. In Luke 7, verse 34, there some were complaining that John the Baptist, uh, his disciples fasted. They were sort of more morose, maybe more conservative, more uh, dull. But it says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, celebrating. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They got it wrong, the gluttony and drunkard part. But they saw him with a lot of food. They saw him with some wine. They saw him with those who like those things. And they drew a wrong conclusion. But Jesus celebrates. He dines with sinners and the reasons why are really clear in luke luke 5 listen to this in verse 29 it says levi the tax collector made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors really bad sorts and others reclining at the table with them but the pharisees the religious leaders and the scribes they grumbled at the disciples saying why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners and jesus answered them Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's not saying that some are well by nature, and then some are sick. He's saying you're all sick, but some know that they're sick. You don't go to the doctor if you don't think you're sick. If you think something's wrong, you need a doctor. You want a doctor. Jesus says in the same way, Righteous people don't seek salvation. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance because they won't repent. It's not that they're righteous, it's that they think they're righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So that's why Jesus eats with sinners. And Jesus himself says that he's food. In John chapter 6, he says he's the bread that came down from heaven, kind of like manna, came down from heaven in the Old Testament. Jesus is that better-than-Moses-like, 
bread from heaven. He's salvation. So he says in verse 35 of John 6, I'm the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Something better than Moses is in front of you. I'm not talking about daily survival, like manna. I'm talking about eternal salvation. God himself has come down. In John 4 and in John 7, Jesus says that he's the living water. And hence, he gives eternal life and fully satisfies. No surprise then, the whole, well, several times in the Old Testament, God describes himself in terms like this. Like Isaiah 55, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are thirsty, come to me, buy of my wine, my milk, my honey without money and without price. He says, if you're desperate and you know you're broke, come and God himself will be your food. So Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. There's some spiritual food that's even better than physical food. Matthew 22, coming to Jesus is likened unto coming to a wedding banquet feast. Remember that in Luke 15 when the prodigal son comes home? How did the father celebrate? He kills the fatted calf and they throw a big party. Jesus doesn't just eat with sinners though. He also eats with his friends, his disciples. And listen to this in Matthew 9. Here again there's the contrast between Jesus' ministry and John the Baptist's. And here it's a contrast with the Pharisees in Jesus. It says, verse 14, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. They will have more reason to do fasts, to skip meals, when... Jesus is no longer visibly visibly and bodily present among them. The day's coming when Jesus will leave the apostles, the disciples. But right now, he's there. They have him. They've got the bridegroom. And so what do you do when you've got the bridegroom? When When you have Jesus right with you, you don't need to fast. You need to celebrate. So Jesus ate with them often. He ate with them one last time. Before the cross. Look to Luke 22 if you would. Turn there. Luke chapter 22. In verse 14. We see. He says when the hour had come. He reclined at the table. And the apostles with him. And he said to them. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Remember? Passover, a yearly celebration. I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, share it among yourselves. In the same way he took the cup after them, skipped down a little bit, 
down to verse 20 now. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So they're having the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper. You've seen the painting. It's what's also an Old Covenant Passover meal, that once-a-year celebration of the time when God's wrath passed over the homes of the Israelites who, in faith, put the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the doorpost of their house. Jesus is that Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Christ, our Passover has also been sacrificed. So the Last Supper is also a First Supper. The Last Supper is the First Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing tonight. That's what we see often in the New Testament. We saw it on Sunday in Acts 2.42. The early church devoted themselves to four things, and one of them was the breaking of bread. Later on in the chapter, it says breaking of bread again, house to house. I think the first breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper, and then the next breaking of bread, confusing as it might be, is just meals shared together. But nevertheless, the first one, I think, is referring to the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to that. 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11 are almost whole chapters on a theology of the Lord's Supper and and, and Paul correcting some things that were wrong in their practice of the Lord's Supper. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death. Proclaiming the Lord. It's a meal that talks. It talks. It preaches. It proclaims. It says something. And we're to do this, we're to partake of this proclamation meal until he comes. Which means that it's temporary. Hold on to that thought for just a second. But let's not forget that until he comes, this isn't the only meal that Christians do together. There's much in the New Testament about Christians sharing meals together. It's just called hospitality. That word, hospitality, is used... Many times in the New Testament, like Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality. It's one of the qualifications for an elder. He must be hospitable. In 3 John, this is how we take care of missionaries and preachers that are traveling through. We ought to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. In Acts 2, Later on in the chapter, they're sharing their meals together, breaking bread house to house. In 1 Peter 4, this is part of how we love each other. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. So if we're thinking through great meals of the Bible... We can't forget that huge category. Christians are to have each other over to their homes, share their food, share life, share conversation. This is part of what fellowship means. There's one more big theological meal still to come. Remember I said 
We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As he celebrated that last supper with the disciples, he says, this is going to be my last meal like this, like a a loaded theological Bible pregnant meal. This is the last one until I come again and in my kingdom we share a meal together. What Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't know what that means. I just know it's going to be good. I mean, it sounds like the new heaven and the new earth will be something like a wedding party, a wedding feast. We're not there yet. Until then, we... Glorify the Lord with our everyday meals as families or by ourselves or with friends. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to God's glory. That means do it with a thankful heart. Do it enjoying it. Enjoying it upwardly to him in thanks. Doing it thoughtfully. It means also doing it communally at times. Hospitality, have each other over. Until the Lord returns, he's given us each other to eat with. He's given us the assignment of doing what Jesus did and having meals with sinners, sharing life with them that we might share Christ with them. And he's also given us as Christians, until he returns, this thing called the Lord's Supper. And this meal has a very special purpose, significance, meaning, symbolism, whatever you want to call it, where the bread symbolizes a torn body and the wine symbolizes spilled blood. Now, if we can piece all this together, here's what the Lord's Supper shows us. It shows us our desperate need. Without food, we die. If Jesus doesn't feed us, With the bread from heaven, we perish. We're in a desperate state. It's not just that we need food, spiritual food, to survive. But don't we have this desire for satisfaction? Much like our desire for, "Mm, I don't know, something salty right now. Mm, I don't know, some ice cream. Ben and Jerry's. And you even have a special uh, version of Ben and Jerry's that you like the most. Do you have a hankering for this right now? I always have a hankering for chili cheese fries. Always. (laughs) All that reminds us, it should remind us that we're groping for satisfaction, right? We're thirsty people. We're hungry people. And Jesus says, he's the bread which fills us up, and he's the water which quenches our souls. The Lord's Supper reminds us that for us to survive and for us to be satisfied, Jesus gave himself. He didn't just give us food. He gave himself. 
In the old covenant, manna fell down from the sky. Magical manna bread just came down. That's great, but it's not God. The bread of heaven in the new covenant, Jesus, he, God himself, came down. He gave us himself. He specifically is the bread which satisfies and the water which quenches So in the Lord's Supper, we have much more than a little bread and a little juice. We have Christ himself symbolized for us. This isn't meant to fill our bellies. We have something more important to fill up. Our souls with him. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we receive these benefits. You just take it in. You don't work for it, you just receive it. In John 6, eating keeps being uh, synonymous with believing and receiving. Like you're eating the bread, what you're doing is receiving Jesus, is what he's getting at. We receive the benefits of his life and his death, and the Lord's Supper reminds us that you could only receive it. Like, like Israelites desperate in the wilderness, how do we get to bread? We're really far away. How do we get some water? There is none around us. You're that desperate for God to save and to satisfy. The Lord's Supper reminds us about each other. So many of the Lord's Supper passages in the New Testament have a clear, relational, communal orientation to them. They're celebrating our unity and our togetherness in Christ. In other words, the Lord's Supper is not meant to be taken alone. It's a church meal. It's also a pilgrim's meal. It's a meal on the way. It's like that bread that that they carried around in Lord of the Rings, right? It's just this, it's powerful, It gets you through. It's not a banquet feast. In the Lord's Supper, it's not a feast, in part because we're not home yet. It's temporary. It looks to a greater fulfillment. It looks to a greater meal. It also reminds us that on our pilgrimage, we're forgetful people. It's a meal of remembrance, which means we forget. Jesus didn't tell us how often to do it. He says, as often as you do it, leaving it open. We do it monthly, and that seems to work for us. But, you know, even if we did it weekly, we would still need to remember every time we do it. We would still have gotten forgetful every time. We're constantly forgetting the implications of the cross, the power of of the cross, glory of the cross, our need for the cross. On and on we could go. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we're forgetful people and we need to remember like we need to eat food. Like your belly needs tomorrow's food, you need to come and eat of the picture of Jesus' death to remind yourself of your neediness, of his mercy, of his grace that he fills our bellies our soul's belly satisfies us that we receive these benefits freely we need to remember so turn to 1 Corinthians 11 just quickly and I'll read some of the verses 
that Paul gives us there about the Lord's Supper, and then we'll partake together. After Paul quotes some of the verses we already read from the Gospels about Jesus giving this this meal to the disciples and to those who come after them, Paul then says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and then eat or so eat of the bread bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we're supposed to examine ourselves. What we're not supposed to do is to eat without discerning the body. We're supposed to discern the body. What does all this mean? Well, we examine ourselves to see once again that we need it, that we need him, that we have no hope outside of him. We examine ourselves, we remind ourselves of our sin, maybe even specific sins, recent sins. And then as we examine ourselves, we discern the body by thinking on who he is and what he's done. It's almost like repentance and faith, right? Examination should lead to repentance. And then discerning the body should lead us to faith. Where we see him afresh. We see him a a victorious savior. Like Isaiah 53 says, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Or like Hebrews 12 says, it was a joy set before him that he endured the cross. He was looking ahead to the reward. The reward, yes, of being exalted at God's right hand, but the reward of winning our salvation 